Before we welcome Reverend Scott Jose, I have a few words uh, that I'd like to share with him. Reverend Jose, uh, Reverend Scott Jose is an ordained minister in our denomination, the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, I am not used to calling him a reverend, though, because I've mostly known him as my preaching professor at Calvin Seminary. By the way, you should really thank him after the service because he's the reason why my sermons clock in around 20 to 22 minutes. <laughs> so make sure to express your gratitude. Um, on top of equipping new pastors for God's church and making sure that their sermons are relatively short, he also serves the church as the director of the Center for Excellence in Preaching. And you will hear from him today. So please join me in welcoming Reverend Scott Jose. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you and good to bring you greetings from Calvin Theological Seminary and from our president, Jewel Maidenblick. I uh, emailed him yesterday that I was going to be here, so he said to be sure to say hello and greetings to the good people of Brookfield. Uh, I was supposed to do this helping out my friend Peter two years ago, and of course everything fell apart. So um, now that uh, Peter is able to get away, I was glad that I was able to uh, uh, keep the assignment that was postponed for two years to lead you in God's Word this morning. I'm going to turn to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 19, what is for many of us, maybe not all of us, but for many of us, uh, a pretty familiar little story. In Luke's gospel, um, starting in the, at the end of the ninth chapter, Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. And so, beginning at the very end of Luke 9, uh, we have this whole sequence where Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and ultimately, of course, to the cross. And it's in this long section of Luke where we have a lot of uh, the material that is only in Luke's gospel, uh, including uh, very famous things like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son. Uh, lots of material that only is found in Luke's gospel is in that long section where Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and we're coming very, very near the end of it. In fact, we are almost on the cusp of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem as we come now to chapter 19, where we read, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now all the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, maybe it was that sycamore tree that did it. Maybe even before Jesus wandered by, Zacchaeus looked at where he was and wondered how it had come to this. What was it that had quite literally chased him clean up a tree? His nice Armani tunic had chlorophyll stains on it from where he had smushed up against the sycamore leaves. He'd, he'd scuffed his Bruno Mali sandals and, and chipped one of the nicely manicured fingernails on his left hand. And now there he was, hunched up in that tree like some schoolboy hiding from the teacher. This was ridiculous. What was a man of his social standing doing crouched up in this silly position? Clattering up a tree like that was definitely not one of the seven habits of highly effective people. In fact, tree climbing like that was the kind of thing only a desperate person would do. Someone who knew deep down that he had gained the whole world but had forfeited his soul. Someone who knew deep down in his heart that he had a yearning that not all the shekels in the Roman Empire would ever be able to buy off. You know, in the at least once familiar little Sunday school song about this tree, where, about this story, we're told that Zacchaeus climbed up that sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. But we have no evidence in the text that Zacchaeus's curiosity toward Jesus had anything to do with his regard of Jesus maybe as a Savior or a Lord. He wanted to see who Jesus was. That's all the text says. That sounds pretty generic. It's like having a friend invite you to the local Barnes & Noble bookstore to attend a book signing by an author you've heard of but you really don't know too much about okay, you might say, I'll, I'll go see who this person is. Well, that's expressing mild curiosity, not some hidden desire to become a devotee of this person. Zacchaeus may have just been curious. But curious though he was, it seems very likely that Zacchaeus's scramble up into that sycamore tree was not something he was eager to have his fellow Jerichoites witness. My hunch is that he was hiding up in that tree. He wasn't sitting there with his legs dangling inelegantly from beneath his tunic, holding up some handmade welcome Jesus sign for all to see. Instead, Zacchaeus was likely well ensconced in the foliage of that tree, peering out from behind the leaves and, and, and hoping that as the people passed by, the crowds and Jesus himself would be too preoccupied to see him sitting up there in that tree. And anyway, once he was up there, he just couldn't help wondering how it had come to this. How did I end up here? He surely must have asked himself. Probably we all have moments like that. For Zacchaeus, it was being up a tree. For the prodigal son, it was slopping hogs and seriously considering the slop for his own breakfast. For a Samaritan woman at a well, it was a moment in the heat of the noonday sun when she came to realize just how really thirsty 
she'd been all along. For all man named Saul, it was getting knocked flat on his back and hearing a voice cry out, Saul, Saul, why? It's the moment of truth. It's the moment when we come to ourselves. We, we blink our eyes a time or two and we look around us and see some things that we've been aware of in our life for quite a while, but that we are only just now starting to recognize as the troubling signs that they are. Reminds me of the story of Millard Fuller. Fuller had been an enterprising young businessman who had done really well for himself. He had already made over a million bucks by the time he turned 30, and there seemed to be no limit to where he would go next. The thing was, a day came when he looked at himself and felt empty. He hardly knew his kids. His marriage had been neglected, and it seemed to be falling apart before his very eyes. What should have mattered most to him in life, other people, serving other people, was getting eclipsed by money. So he and his wife prayed, and then they gave away a lot of their wealth. Millard quit his job and, and used his remaining resources to do something good. He founded Habitat for Humanity. One day, Millard just came to himself. He encountered the moment of truth. And make no mistake, such moments of truth and of clarity are also moments of grace. It's a grace to come to know the truth. And at the end of the day, truth is grace and grace is truth because as for Zacchaeus, so for all of us, it is only by grace that we can be saved. Sitting up there in that ridiculous tree that day, Zacchaeus was starting to see this for himself. And so when the parade stops, and when Jesus looks right up into that tree, and when the whole crowd follows suit, I imagine Zacchaeus' first reaction was a deep gulp and then a rush of blood to his face. He blushed the way you do when someone tells you you just called somebody by the wrong name or, or that you got a, a piece of chive stuck between your teeth. Now for the townsfolk, hearing Jesus say Zacchaeus' name probably made them think, ha ha, ha ha. Jesus spied that little crook. He snookered me out of 300 shekels last year, and boy, am I glad to be here the moment when Jesus gives it to that little guy, but good. But no. Jesus speaks kindly to Zacchaeus. There isn't a whiff of judgment in what Jesus says. And Jesus then astounds the good folks of Jericho when he says to Zacchaeus that it is his house where he wants to go and stay for the day. Now Luke tells us that Zacchaeus fairly tumbled out of that tree and welcomed Jesus with joy. Well, actually the NIV says that Zacchaeus welcomed Jesus gladly and the NRSV says that Zacchaeus was happy to welcome Jesus. But both of those are actually weak renderings of the actual Greek verb there, which is the verb for joy, or really for rejoicing. Zacchaeus found joy. 
And as you may know, in Luke's gospel, joy is always shorthand for salvation. In fact, a few chapters back in Luke 15, we had three stories, three short parables of lost and found. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost or the prodigal son. And each one of those stories ends with rejoicing, with the same word used here in Luke 19. Rejoicing is what happens when salvation comes. In short, Luke is telling us that Zacchaeus did not get saved a while later when he promised to pay back all those people he had robbed. No, Zacchaeus was saved right then and there in that tree. What he later did was the fruit of his salvation, not the root. Something about the very presence of Jesus changed that sawed-off little crook. Grace came, salvation came, joy followed, and Zacchaeus knew that he would never be the same ever again. You know, it was easy for Zacchaeus to see right then and there what grace had done for him. And maybe it's easy for all of us to see that the hour we first believed, as the old song has it. But then over time we forget. We lose sight of the fact that it's all grace, and we start to grade ourselves on the curve. We start to think that God loves us, not because He has blotted out all of our sins by His grace alone, but because morally speaking, we're just so darn cute. I mean, we're morally irresistible. We're better than other people. We go to church, we volunteer, we do kingdom work all the time, we pray, we read the Bible. Why, if, if Jesus came to our town, we'd want to be at the head of the pack to greet Him, and we just know Jesus would be really happy to see us. You wouldn't find us hiding up in some old tree, no siree. We'd be leading the pack to welcome Jesus because we are Jesus' kind of people already. I mean, let the losers climb the trees, but for us... Oh dear. You know, at Calvin Seminary, as Hyung Kwan could tell you, uh, or as my other former student whose family is here, Richard Britton, could tell you, we, we, we teach a, a homiletic, a, a sermon structure based on Paul Scott Wilson. It's called the Four Pages of the Sermon. And the idea is that in every sermon, with every text we preach on, we want to see what is the issue at hand. What's up in the air? What's going on in this passage? What's the tension, the question? And then we want to see what does God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit do to address that issue or fix that problem or answer that question. And then in the last part of the sermon, what we call page four, we look to vignettes of God's grace in the world. Where do we see God at work right now, right here, today? And most students will admit that that's the hard part. It's challenging to find good stories or examples of, of God in the move, of grace in the world. But sometimes I wonder, it's part of our struggle that we fail to recognize that the entirety of our lives is grace, grace, grace as it is? Might we get better at spying and identifying specific examples of grace if we recognize that grace is just where we live all the time anyway? Maybe. Maybe. 
But the fact of the matter is that it is by grace we have been saved, not by works. And Zacchaeus didn't need to receive any more grace than the rest of us need. Zacchaeus didn't need to receive any extra doses of grace than anybody else. Zacchaeus did not need the grace 100 milligram super tab while the rest of us can get by with a 25 milligram tablet. No, grace is grace. Mother Teresa didn't need any less grace to get saved than you or I. And none of us need more or less grace to get saved than my students at our satellite campus at the Hanlon Prison in Michigan, some of whom, most of whom are in jail for having done terrible things once at a time uh, in their life, armed robbery and murders and kidnapping. But Jesus has found these men there in that prison where we work back in Michigan, and as for you, as for me, as for Zacchaeus, Jesus met people like that. He applied his standard dose of grace and salvation roared in right behind it, followed by all the joy and the rejoicing in the world. We all get caught up in one big happy cleansing tide of baptism. Zacchaeus received the Lord with joy. Grace does that. It's the best joy generator ever. But it doesn't have to stop the first moment we experience grace. When we know grace's abiding presence in our hearts, we discover that joy just sort of pops out all over the place in our lives. But that's no surprise either, because in the Greek language, the word for grace is a form of the word for joy and of rejoicing. And they all point in the direction of shalom, in the direction of a, of a renewal of all creation, a renewal that fills also us with joy and that fills our lives with singing. All those words and all the gospel truths behind them weave in and through one another to, to create one glorious gospel tapestry of grace and joy. In his book, Setting Words on Fire, Paul Scott Wilson reminds us of a story that was related by fellow preacher Hugh Reed, who ministered for a long time in the Toronto area of Canada. To paraphrase Reverend Reed's story, one day a man named Alan Roberts came to Reverend Reed's study and asked to be baptized. And as they talked, Reverend Reed heard the story of what had brought Alan to that moment. Alan had been a child of the me decade. And so as soon as he was able, he, he left his, his parents and he left his home and he went out into the world to, you know, find himself, only of course to promptly lose himself, getting trapped in a world of drugs and wandering the streets of Vancouver, trapped, broke, and lost. Well, one night Alan managed to get off the streets and into one of the homeless shelters. He crashed into the bunk stared up at the ceiling, listened to the groans of the men around him, and tried not to be overcome by the odors emanating from the other men. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know who he was, but he wanted it to be over with. And so he considered that night how he might take his own life. He was shaken out of his thoughts when someone came in and called out a name from another world. Is Alan Roberts here? Well, that had been his name once, but he hadn't heard it in a good long while. 
Now, he hardly knew Alan Roberts anymore, so it couldn't be his name that was getting called. But the caller persisted. Is there anybody here named Alan Roberts? Nobody else said anything, so he took a risk. Did you, you know, I'm Alan Roberts, or I used to be. Oh, your mother's on the phone. My mother? No, no, you've, you've made a mistake. I don't know where I am. How in the world could my mother know where I am? Well, if you're Alan Roberts, your mother's on the phone. So he went to the desk and he took the receiver. Alan? It was his mother. Alan, it's time for you to come home. Mom, I I don't know where I am. I I have no money. You don't know what I'm like anymore, Mom. I can't come home. No, Alan, it's time for you to come home. There's a Salvation Army officer on his way to you with a plane ticket. He's going to take you to the airport and get you home. Now, in truth, of course, Alan's mother did have no idea where he was. So she had been calling every homeless shelter in the Vancouver area every night for six months until she found him. And so Alan went home. And loved and supported by his mother and inspired by the faith that had sustained his mother's hope against all odds, Alan began attending church and soon after found himself in Reverend Reed's office wanting to be baptized. He didn't find his own way to my office, Reed says. A path not of his own making was made for him by the love that found him, by the love that sustained him, by the love that better knew him better than he knew himself, and by the love of the Jesus who had invited him to follow me. First time I preached this sermon was March 20, 2020. It was the first Sunday of the COVID-19 lockdown, and so I preached the sermon at my home congregation to a completely empty sanctuary except for two AV people, a pianist, and my pastor and his wife. And that was just the beginning of a very long, now two-and-a-half-year journey that we and the whole planet have been on. Of course, back at that time, we thought this thing couldn't possibly last more than a couple weeks, month or two at the outside. Probably just as well we didn't know. But then we were also rocked with political and partisan issues, with with racial killings and all the backlash. In the midst of all of that and so much more, we've all had more than a little opportunity of late to feel lost. We felt uncertain. We felt alone. We've wondered if God is really watching, caring, protecting. Like Zacchaeus, we've wondered if there is any hope We, too, have been desperate and in need of hearing the Savior's voice. So, yeah, maybe it was that sycamore tree that did it. Maybe at some point, looking around himself that day, Zacchaeus wondered how it had come to this. And at one point, Zacchaeus looked at himself and where he was and said, I am lost. And just then he heard a voice say, Zacchaeus. And he just knew. He'd been found. Amen. Lord our God, we are so grateful for your gospel. And for anyone here 
today in this place or watching from home, for any who feel lost and alone, for any who wonder if there's a grace and a hope big enough to bring them once again to joy, reach out by your Holy Spirit, O Lord. Call their name. Let them respond with rejoicing and give you the glory. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.